Good day, I'm Anne Dollenshek, and thank you for tuning into Anne on Influence. In this episode, we're in conversation with MJ Khan. He is an award-winning strategist, academic, bookmarks judge, and category vice chair, next-gen awards judge, keynote speaker, and a very proud father. He heads up group digital communications at Sassel and is responsible for social media, online and digital campaigns across 22 countries. We chat about the power of communication in all its formats, the evolution of digital communications over the last decade and the complexity thereof these days. We disprove the myth of the short attention span and we discuss Sassel's most recent campaign in detail. Enjoy. This podcast series has been made possible through an exclusive sponsorship from SA's number one nano influencer platform, The Salt. Most brands have a communication line to the existing customers, but do not have a way to get them to have additional positive brand conversations. The Salt solves the problem by identifying brand fans and getting them to talk more about their positive brand experiences. The Salt have a database of over 230,000 registered brand fans and in-depth information on each to perfectly match an influencer to your brand. Reach out to them today and see what they can do for you. Afternoon, MJ. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I'm so excited for our conversation because I feel like everyone knows who you are and you bring so much to our industry. So super, super excited. Before we get into our conversation, I would love for you just to kind of tell us all about kind of your journey to becoming the head of Group Digital Communications at Sassel. An absolute pleasure, I think. Uh, you know, you, you know, we've got a great career together going back like 10 years. Can you believe when we were working in an agency together? And, um, I, I've been really lucky. It's been a wonderful journey. So I wrote my first radio ad back in 2001. Uh, I started off in classical advertising. Uh, I sort of veered into more strategic co- corporate comms at that point around the mid 2000s. Really enjoyed that, you know, uh, understanding sort of the power of communication. Uh, I then moved into digital around 2009. And I've sort of been in that space since then. So um, digital quite firmly, jumped around between different agencies. Every couple of years, I'll move to a different agency. It's just sort of the way I used to do things. And about eight years ago, I moved to client side. And that's when I joined Sassel, been there ever since. And yeah, just absolutely loving it. So a really fun, interesting 21-year journey to date. Amazing. And I feel like you were saying you jumped around from agency. I feel like we all do that. Um, because it is no day is the same it's new challenges and we just kind of learn more skills the more places we go which is great definitely and i find you know that i'm so grateful for that so some of the agencies were really small and boutique and and that's when i was sort of cutting my teeth in the early days and you'd have one two uh, clients and you'd have to sort of figure out everything for them but but not have support structures in place so you know you'd have to learn on the job so if there was something new at that time. So say, for example, search engine optimization, which was really new back in the day, I'd have to like sort of scramble and figure it out, you know, and and try and be the best at it. And that's really the thing, you know, 10 years ago, uh, if you were embedded in digital communication, you could learn about everything. And and now because of the depth of it and the specialization, you have to be really deliberate and intentional about this is where I'm going to play. This is what I understand. This is what I know. And this is what I don't know. And be completely comfortable with that, you know, saying if it's to do with A, B and C, I'm your person. I don't know everything, but I know enough and I'm going to learn more. But if it's to do with D, E, F, then no, <laughs> not for me. 
I think that's so important, especially in this day and age where it's so easy for us to just go off on tangent, be like, yes, yes, I can do it all and scramble in the background and try and learn it. But to your point, there's so much that there's a specialist that you can easily just pull in and say, you know what, this is not my field, but you know what, this person can really assist and they are already the expert and it's going to take them two hours to do where it's going to take me 12 hours just to learn. <laughs> 100%. And we're seeing this a lot more with social media platforms. So it is really easy to become uh, proficient in social media platforms from a marketing perspective a while ago, you know, where it was really about copy and maybe rudimentary design. But with the age of sort of a lot of video like TikTok and with even, even the, the rise of video in, in, in Instagram and YouTube, you're finding that you really need specialist video skills for that, which is why the transition from copy to design has been a lot more jarring just because the, the learning curve is so much more steeper. Those of us who traditionally did a lot of social media marketing are now having to step back and say, hang on, you know, there's all of this, um, uh, let's call it complications and complexities that, that we need to account for. And if we want to really be the best at our game, we need to be able to say, this is what we can do and this is where we need help. I love that. And I think it's something that, that we all should learn. And I feel like it's sometimes a bit difficult for us to do. <laughs> but but MJ, that brings me to a really good question. So you just said earlier that you started off in, in classic advertising where you wrote your first kind of radio ad. So what then attracted you to go over to digital and social media at the end of the day? Oh, geez. It, it's, so, so communication is communication. I think often when we talk about digital, you know, we, we, we give it its own sort of bucket so, or, or, or we make it separate from everything else. But the truth is, you know, we've always, uh, as human beings, you know, we, we, we love by the power of communication. So I've always been fascinated by communication. What sort of got me really interested in digital well, was two things. Now, one, the idea that digital is participatory. So it's like radio, it's like TV, it's like print, except um, you as a user, you know, you're participating in, in it somehow. You are self-selecting what you want to consume. You are engaging with it on your own terms. And I really like that. I like that idea of choice. I like that idea that there's um, not just choice in terms of how much you can consume, but choice in terms of how you want to approach it, you know? Like if I think about, you know, I was growing up, um, we used to love family time on a Friday night. And that's when there'll be A-Team and Airwolf and I'm giving away my age here. But, you know, at half a seven on a Friday evening, that's when you have to be in front of the TV, otherwise you'll miss it. And and we're not bound by that anymore. You know, we can watch what we want on demand uh, on our own terms. And, and part of that is the reason why I really like digital. It was taking communication principles understanding that you're sort of joining it with this this level of engagement, this level of participatory selection, and, and being able to do it also at scale, you know? All of a sudden, because of digital, I could reach so many more people than I could just traditionally. So, so I thought that was a, a really interesting aspect of digital that I love to explore, and, and I sort of just went down that path. Uh, I completely agree with you. And I think for me, digital is also what you were saying. It's not that one-way communication where a brand is speaking at you. It is that participation. It is that two-way communication where brands can seem accessible, where you can actually have conversations with your, your consumers or your fans. And I think that makes it so much more exciting, but also so much more complex because you have to get that tone right. 
hundred percent. You know, gone gone are the days where, where as a brand, um, you have any semblance or, or semblance of control, right? And and everything has to be sort of manufactured in a certain way because now as brands, you're realizing more and more you don't necessarily have control of your brand. You don't have control. Uh, of what you do, you know, it's uh, the the community does. Uh, it's open on social media, which is why, as a brand, you also need to be very strict and uh, about how you position yourself online. You need to be strict in terms of whatever you're doing. You know, question yourself: is it self-serving or does it have value to external stakeholders? And, and you know, we might touch on this a little later, but that's form that forms part of my principles in terms of how I create content and what are those things I I, I factor in before I even press publish on any piece of content. I think that does lead me into my next question is, I really want to understand more about your industry and kind of the common obstacles that you guys face when it comes to comms and marketing. I mean, you're not in like this B2C fun industry, so to speak. You guys are really doing really important and and serious work. So how do you then communicate with people and kind of what's your tactics to kind of overcome those obstacles that that you would find. So, so it's a wonderful, right? Um, I'm not. Sure, maybe let me take a moment to tell um, all, all your viewers a little bit about the company that I work for. So, Sassel is a global chemicals and energy company. We're uh, in 22 countries, and we have customers in over 100. We're we're, we're primarily a B2B chemicals. Uh, that's industrial chemicals, but we also have a large energy footprint. So in South Africa, for example, we've got over 400 retail sites, servicing 6 million customers. And, and that really gives me an interesting balance with regards to having B2C on one end of the spectrum and, and B2B on the other end when it comes to um, chemical products that are very specialized, that have a very small market, simply because you know we would sell it onto a manufacturer that would then incorporate that into cosmetics or or paint or e- even uh, synthetic glass for for cell phones. You know, there's oh, wow. millions of applications. And um, what I find really interesting is it's not necessarily the distinction between you know B two C uh, business to consumer and business to business. Um, Andrew Perkins famously said back in 2014, it's not B two C or B two B, it's human to human. And I really take that to heart. So when I'm engaging yeah, with, um, you know, with, with someone within a, within a B2B lens, sure, the processes might be different. The purchasing uh, funnel might be slightly different, right? In terms of all, all the things you need to consider when you're buying something at a B2B level versus a B2C level. But the objectives are still the same. The emotional triggers should still be the same. So I think... There's some differences, but there's a lot more richness in the similarities if you start treating people as human. I love that. And it's actually so true. Um, And it also comes down to that adage of like, people don't buy from brands, they buy from people. And I think that's also why we're talking to you today, because obviously we're talking about influencer marketing. And before we go into what Sassel actually does with influencers and how effective that actually is, which was a bit puzzling to me, <laughs> but the proof is in the pudding. I would, I want to take us back a little bit and I would love to understand from you where in your career did you first encounter influencer marketing? I kind of want to know when it was, what format that took, was it kind of celebrity endorsement? Was it your <laughs> clients? And, and really what was your expectations when you started with it? Wow. So you're taking me back 10 years. Um, I did my first, look, 
there, there, there has been sort of instances of we we didn't call it influencer marketing back in the day. So I mean, if if I, if I recall, the first time I did anything close to that was probably around two thousand and five, two thousand and six. And and what happened then was uh, I was working with a broadcaster on a, a magazine show for television. And, you know, uh, we were negotiating deals for different restaurants in terms of we'll use it as a location for a shoot. And in return, we would get some value out of it. So so that was perhaps the starting point. And then the, the presenters themselves w- w- would have that value. Um, also, back in the day when I wrote my first radio ad, I used to be a radio presenter. So this was for a community radio station. So there would be some level of exposure within uh, with myself in that space and and my ability to then sort of sell products based on that, right? Simply because of the audience. So, so I dabbled in it a lot in the past, but the first time I actually did it in a very meaningful way at an agency level was in 2012 and it was for a toothpaste brand. And, and back then, you know, I think it was, it was really undefined. Um, it wasn't the rise of influencer marketing the way we perhaps understand it now no, in terms I- of its maturity cycle. It was really about... Um, using celebrities for their reach <laughs> more than influence, if that makes sense. So, yeah, uh, contracted out to a celebrity, uh, paid them a lot of money to promote the product, and it didn't really work out because, you know, as you said earlier, social media is all about the feedback loop. It's about uh, not just yeah. broadcasting, but listening to people when they talk back. And when people ask the celebrity questions related to their product, it was really evident that we weren't paying for influence. We we're paying for reach. And I feel like this was 2012, so I would mm-hmm. guess the main platform would have been like Twitter. Um, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> yeah, so, so Twitter and Facebook, those those were the big ones back in the day, you know. <laughs> yeah, but to your point, and since then we've obviously a bit more, I wouldn't say regulated, but there's a couple of, of things in play now where they have to disclose whether it's paid mm-hmm. for. Because to your point, all of a sudden, I'm this big celebrity and all of a sudden I'm talking about toothpaste. I'm pretty sure everyone was like, sure, let me let me ask a couple of questions and then realize mm, you got paid for this. You don't actually use whatever it was um, day to day or you just weren't paid enough to actually interact with us, <laughs> which is the reality, yeah. right? <laughs> it, definitely. Yeah. I think it, it, it really speaks to, you know, uh, us being more sober about it. I mean, when you're using someone as a platform, as a reach platform, versus when you're really tapping into influence because someone has built up some level of credibility within that niche and you're tapping into that and, and it's evident. And I think the, these days, you know, there's a lot more skepticism. So it's more apparent when, when it's just a quick, so sort of broadcast yeah. versus I actually believe in this product, therefore it's a partnership. And I think that is exactly it. It's that credibility and it's also that resonance, right? You These days we won't just choose someone because they're famous for the amount of followers up. We would have all these questions and look into who they actually speak to and their content and their values, which is great. Um, and you said that it, that um, campaign didn't really work out for you guys. So I wonder what was your kind of thoughts after that campaign were you like oh influencer marketing this is a hack or what was what was the thought process after that it it, it was disappointing i mean look i mean this is back in 2012 where um even something like paid media for for digital wasn't necessarily 
um, at that point was really mature and, and a lot of brands understood how to do it really well. You know, ba- back then a lot of us were booking paid media through through one platform and it was a really sort of laborious, cost-intensive uh, sort of process. You know, now it's really democratized, right? So now anyone with a credit card can go into Facebook yeah. and promote a post with like three clicks. And it wasn't like that back in the day. So it was sort of weighing up, okay, cool, you're going to go down this route with influencer marketing, or you're just going to go pay for the ad. It's still quite novel. There wasn't any level of saturation because Facebook just never monetized as aggressively as they do now. And you were able to get similar results. So so for me, yeah, it was, okay, cool, we tried it. Uh, It was a while till I tried it again. So I was definitely a little jaded by the experience and just found that through my own owned efforts, uh, I, I could get better results. So, so yeah, I mean, but but again, that that's not necessarily a fault of influencer marketing. It's just my experience no. and my circumstance at the time. No, absolutely. And I think most people back then um, felt the same. So for us, I think, like we were saying earlier, you and I come a long way. Um, and we were kind of working at the same agency when all of this was starting off. And for us, it was um, in electronic space, was more was bloggers, not so much celebrities and there was also like okay so we have this handful of bloggers these are the people we know these are the people we're going to get on the campaign and we didn't have the the finesse to also measure the metrics that we can today so it was all about like okay how many views did your blog post get and you just kind of trusted the person to tell you um you know what was your how many likes did you get on twitter facebook so it was very vanity but it was a novelty like clients loved it we loved working it was like a new media that came in but we couldn't really measure it so so it's nice that we've now progressed so far that we can now be so specific of what we can measure and i think that's also then my next question since your disappointment with a with a toothpaste brand um to now which is about 10 years later how do you feel about influence marketing now these days Oh well, so so I think yeah the the industry rather let's just call it that as an umbrella term, it, it's really matured and you know I'm quite grateful as well. So I was able to to also participate in creating like for example the white paper on uh, on influencers in South Africa. You know being able to disclose that something is an ad and also sort sort of track and see what was happening around influencer marketing in terms of, of people understanding the business nature of it, you know, uh, and, and the transactional nature of it and what, what it entails. But, but, and I mean, part of what you did back in the day and what I've learned a lot from you at that agency was how you really looked at it from an interest and niche perspective. So, so I, I gained so much from you back then, you know, and, and we started to see a lot more of that translate into what a lot of agencies are doing these days. So hat tip to you, definitely. But, um, yeah, I think, I think there's a level of, of, um, maturity that's come about. I think there, there's increasingly some level of skepticism around it, which, which won't go away. And I think it's just going to get, uh, louder and louder. But I think that's actually a good thing. I think if people are skeptical about the messages that are, are being sort of shared, you know, with them, that it then goes back to why do you trust this individual? And if you trust this individual, do you believe they have, you know, your best interest at heart? And do you think they'll endorse something that resonates with you? 
So, so it is becoming an interesting space. You know, it, it almost reminds me of like if uh, for those of you who enjoy um, classical media theory, and you know, the classic example is uh, War of the Worlds, right? And initially, this radio show, and when they played it on radio, a lot of people lost their minds because they thought it was an actual alien invasion. Yeah. And, and you can sort of look at how, in I think this was the twenties or the thirties, uh, back then, you know, there was this level where if someone sees something on radio and you don't have the that familiarity or, or or the sophistication to understand that it's just fiction, it might cause real panic. Whereas now we're a lot more skeptical, you know, whether it is just the abundance of information we have at hand, whether it is our own choices, whether it is us uh, just being skeptical of the system, you know, if you want to call it that. Um, I, I think there's a, a level of sophistication, a level of skepticism that's inherent in all of us as consumers these days that will then go out and, and regulate, uh, in a way, uh, influences. And, and if an influencer is saying something that's inauthentic, they'll, they'll be called out for it. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I think it's a very good thing. And I think we've seen it, especially over the last three, four years, where this has started happening, where people are really skeptical and they have weeded out, so to speak, the disingenuous influences where you've seen a lot of them disappear just purely because people, they were just doing campaigns for the sake of doing campaigns. And the ones who really stuck to it and is amazing now are the ones who stay true to who they were, who was really picky about who they worked with, the messages they put out, and, and they're the ones on the rise. So I completely agree with you. Um, and also with this maturity came um, with the beauty sector. Also, I think recently, was it this year in the UK, we said, if you're going to use a beauty filter, if you're doing a beauty campaign, you have to disclose that because, again, it's misleading advertising. Um, so I know a lot of people think it's silly and people can spot an ad a mile off. But I also think there's equally as many people who just want that transparency, whether they can see it or not. And to your point, you know, I think whether you can spot if something's an ad or not is inconsequential. Whether you can spot whether something has value or not, that's what we need to be interrogating. And I think sometimes we fixate on, you know, is it an ad or not? And the question is, is it valuable? So, so you know, I often hear the, this uh, myth about how um, our attention spans are like a goldfish, right? Eight seconds. And, and that's been debunked scientifically. And, and I push back and I say, if my attention span is eight seconds, how is it that I'm able to watch a three-hour, five-minute movie, Avengers Endgame, without even blinking that often? That's an amazing attention span. How am I able to watch an hour of Game of Thrones? So it's not that my attention span is, is sort of dropping or whatever it is. It's that I want to consume great content. And similarly, you know, it's not whether an influencer is sharing an ad or not. It's whether what they're sharing resonates with me, whether I feel value and I see value in it. And that's the conversation we need to be having, not whether something is an ad or not. You're so right. Because also, I look at those things and it's like, oh, this drop off after eight seconds or 10 seconds. I'm like, yeah, because after that eight to 10 seconds, I'm not interested anymore. But then I can watch another video of pets or cats <laughs> or jokes or someone pulling a prank. And that's like a full two, three minutes now that's allowed on there. And I'm sitting there like glued to it. And I know hundreds and thousands of other people are too. Then again, to your point, why am I still paying attention to that? But you're telling me my attention span is teeny tiny. So it's all about, to your point, is it bringing value to my life? Is it entertaining me? Is it educating me? Why am I watching? And I think that's also where creators 
are becoming more and more creative in how they deliver messaging because it's literally their jobs to engage people. 100%. And with that as well, I, I think the market will decide, the market will determine, you know, whose uh, voice get, gets amplified, gets shared, gets celebrated uh, and gets endorsed. So, so the market will decide. I think we, we as consumers, we, we give, we need to give ourselves more credit. You know, it's, it's not a case of, you know, influencers pulling the wool over people's eyes, uh, as is sometimes treated as the narrative. And unfortunately, that's the overarching narrative, right? And it really angers me because there's so many other things we can talk about than just people not putting hashtag ad. Yeah, we know. <laughs> uh, MJ, let's talk about your most recent campaigns. I know you've been doing some really cool things with Sassel. And I'm not meaning like it's out there wacky cool. It's just like you literally using the voices of your, your consumers, the people who actually use your products every single day to tell the story of Cecil and, and just to kind of create that content for you. Again, going back to, to residency, right? So I think my first question is probably, why did you choose to go the influencer marketing route when there's so many other marketing channels available? Ah, okay, great question. So, so this was for uh, one of our recent campaigns and it was a budget campaign. And the reason why uh, I opted to use an influencer marketing strategy over and above all the other hygiene that we do is because I had a very specific objective and everything I do, you know, regardless of, again, coming back to the conversation we had earlier about B2C, B2B, it, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Uh, for me, I'm really strict on my principles. Like, what is the objective? What are you trying to achieve? And then from there, you know, who do you want to talk to? What do you want to tell them? And what do you want them to feel? And how are you going to measure it? So I'm very strict on my principles which is why any conversation I have internally in the business with any any of my colleagues or even externally with our agencies, I always come back to those objectives. And when we looked at the, the bursary campaign, there were two things I noticed, you know, based on, on what I've tracked in previous years. The first thing I noticed was this year, we, we just didn't have enough time to create enough assets. So, so normally we'd have a, a longer lead time with bursaries. We'd be able to go and interview current bursaries and, and get their perspective on why accessible bursaries are valuable. And, and we simply didn't have enough time to actually shoot a lot of big content like that in the cycle, you know? So we were able to create some static visuals, but that was about it. So, so we needed more creative, simply put. And a great way of doing that is by, by reaching out to influencers and content creators and saying, here's my challenge. Can you create content within your own point of view and framework? So that was the first guiding principle. The second guiding principle is I I'm never, ever comfortable with just doing the same thing I do all the time. You know, um, I don't benchmark against my peers. I benchmark against my previous campaigns. And I said, okay, cool. We've done all this great stuff in the past. So our, our hygiene for these campaigns are amazing because we get great results for bursaries. Uh, it's something I'm very proud of. But I'm like, I can always do a little bit better. You know, I can always try and reach that candidate that I haven't been able to reach with all my other platforms and, and tell them about it because it's such a great opportunity. I want everyone who, who meets the criteria to be able to apply for it. And we thought some of these um, content creators, these influencers, they are able to tap into some audiences that I might not necessarily have been able to tap into. So let me then utilize them to just spread our message into the furthest uh, so, so, sort of spaces, you know. So it wasn't going mass per se, you know, that we took care of in terms of our digital spend. It was about going niche. It was, let's speak to people. Let's, let's have a, a person that can engage with their community, that can answer questions, 
there, for example, if there was a language barrier, we could overcome it that way. And we could start speaking to a lot more people so that this great message could go out. So yeah, those were the two things that really informed me sort of uh, raising my hand and saying, you know, what, let me try and influence the strategy. So what were your main objectives besides just reaching those news audiences um, and the people that you really want to speak to? In other words, kind of like, what did you really measure on this campaign? Because I mean, bursaries, that's a fantastic um, campaign, but what are you measuring to see what success looks like? So, so with bursaries, I mean, it's fundamentally really about getting people to to visit the website and apply. So at its core, it's a very simple objective, something we can measure digitally, right? So we can measure traffic. What I always look for uh, over and above making sure we get people onto the site to to apply is, is to make sure that we get as much diversity as possible. You know, we, we do understand that, that we need to have a lot more representation when it comes to women engineers. You know, it's really important. Like, and that's that's one of my uh, passion points is is how how do we challenge the status quo in what is sometimes viewed as a traditionally male oriented industry, which is engineering. So, how do we ensure that we get more more women to the pipeline? So, how do you uh, inspire girls who are in matric and studying science to know, hey, there's an opportunity for you to take this further to become an engineer? You know, it's not just stereotypically something that men do. And for me, that's really important. So over and above just getting people uh, to go to the site and register. And obviously, we're very transparent as well. So our criteria is very clear. It's out there. And part of that is also we're comfortable with who we are. We know what we want. We know what we offer. And we know what what it's meant for. So we're very clear on that. Like, you go into that website, you'll see the criteria. So with that in mind, that empowers me, uh, knowing that I'm trying to get as many people as possible. It really is about how do we get people to apply and, and how do we widen the net so we get a lot more diversity in applications. That, those are my objectives. Amazing. So you've just said as well, you obviously want to speak to a diverse audience. You want to reach those women. What kind of influences did you use? Was it the big macros? Was it smaller guys? Was it nanos? Who did you really use to speak to to these people? And and did you did you exceed your expectations? <laughs> oh, oh, we definitely did exceed expectations. I was actually quite chuffed <laughs> with the campaign. So uh, you know, when it came to choosing the influences, whether they were the sort of the macro or the micro, uh, we went back and we thought, you know, if we really wanted reach, we could have done it ourselves. We, we have over a million followers on our social media platforms. I mean, organically, we reach like seventy million people a month. You know, so we we could have done that. We could have had those conversations, but we didn't want that. We didn't just want reach, and we didn't, didn't just want some form of celebrity endorsement. We we wanted to speak through people that really believed in it and uh, that knew people. That I could benefit from bursaries, you know. So we went to that authentic conversation. So we went micro, we went nano, we went really small, really niche, because those were the gaps that that my paint couldn't reach, you know. And, and that's who I wanted to speak to. I wanted I wanted it to be intimate conversations uh, amongst a few people, because uh, if we could, out of this entire exercise, you know, get um, maybe even five hundred more people. To apply for a bursary that never knew that existed and didn't know this opportunity existed, I, I, I would have been happy. And I'm glad to say, you know, we, we got so many uh, sort of uh, diverse applicants because of the process. And I'm going to attribute some of that success to the influencer campaign. Oh, I love hearing that because it is, again, making those opportunities for people who would have never even known about it. So I love that. Yeah, it's a great, great campaign. <laughs> 
So MJ, I know a couple of weeks ago, you were also a judge at the Bookmarks Award. And I'm really excited because when we chatted, it was still under embargo. And now we're finally getting to chat and, and you can actually speak about it. I want to know, was there any influencer campaigns that kind of stood out for you? And, and why did they stand out for you? And is there any kind of lessons you will take from there or little tips that you will incorporate in your campaigns going forward? So uh, lots of trends that pop up, you know, from from uh, a sort of awards perspective when it comes to influencer marketing. In fact, what I probably might do is I might reflect on what has happened in previous years. So I'm very lucky when it comes to bookmarks. Uh, this is my third time judging bookmarks. And I'm also lucky because I'm vice jury chair, uh, vice jury chair for the panel as well. So, you know, it was quite a great experience. In fact, at the moment, I'm actually judging the Next Gen Awards. And, Amazing. Uh, that, yeah, that, that I'm judging for another 10 days. And then I think the winners will be announced next month. But but back to bookmarks, um, what I found previously, what, what was really interesting. So you see uh, a personality like Shoma Josie, who like really blow up and she like took over the scene a couple of years ago. And it was really interesting to see which brands collaborated with her at, at that level. And, and you can see she, she lends herself so well to, to brand partnerships. But again, it has to be the right brand partnerships. So a few years ago, uh, you saw her pop up a lot with, with different products and different brands. And, and it was quite good because it made sense. It was a really good fit. Interestingly enough, what I saw a lot of this year was a lot of comedians uh, playing in that space, you know. So, and again, it's not something new, you know, co comedians and influencer campaigns, they do have some level of synergy that's historical, but a lot more this year, whether it was in the form of uh, processed meats or alcohol, or even comedians, um, you know, doing an influencer campaign for a, a publisher. So, so yeah, that, that was one of the trends that we saw this year is brands leaning into comedy. And I think part of that might just be because of all the, you know, post-COVID trauma and, yeah. and trying to regain post. some level of normalcy. <laughs> yeah, well, post, right? So, 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 so yeah. trying to overcome the, the doom and the gloom yeah. and using humor as that, that vehicle for it. So we saw a lot of that this year. It's funny that you, you said that because I've been picking up on that as well over the last seven, eight months. And I'm just seeing all these amazing comedians that we've always kind of followed everywhere and they're doing well. But all of a sudden, just brands are just partnering with them with like crazy. And I've been so happy for them because they are such good fits. And I had the exact same thoughts. I was like, everyone is just looking for that silver lining after a couple of years of just bad news. Uh, and I absolutely love it. And I think part of it also speaks to like a brand sort of need or desire to position itself as more human friendly, to position itself as more playful. And and if it's that's not coming out sort of authentically from the brand in terms of the the brand has to transition to that phase, sometimes it helps just to bring in an outside voice like a comedian to just be that catalyst to accelerate that journey or that positioning, you know. But look, it doesn't always work. Uh, part, when we were judging, we also noticed some brands who use comedians and it completely fell flat because uh, there was a, a very distinct disconnect between the brand, the brand values, and even the products and, and the comedian. You know, it's, it's a lot like, sure, creatively, you could make a, a funeral policy really clever, but should you be? <laughs> and I think that comes back to influence marketing or just creating an advert, right? Because I can cost anyone in an ad. Um, and to your point, we can do something great. We can put it on all the channels and we can probably get that reach. 
But when it comes to influence marketing, there's so much more that you need to consider. Like, is it a brand fit? Is it valuable? Is it just, do they share values with a brand? And I think to your point is like, every creator and every brand should also think, this is great, but should I be doing this? <laughs> no, and that level of skepticism is good because I, I think as a brand as well, you know, uh, what, what I've learned sort of historically is, is sometimes brands, you know, we, we sort of lose our way. So we have a very distinct brand essence. And and because of the rise of a social media platform or a community that might not necessarily, it, it's an imagined community or it's a virtual community, it might not necessarily uh, represent your customers. But but in attempts to try and, and court this community, you, you sometimes might lose your brand essence. And I mean, I had this experience um, about, about a decade ago where, where I worked with a certain uh, cosmetic product and it was a very clear and distinct brand essence that it stood for. But the social media community, specifically the Facebook community uh, that, that liked this brand, wanted it to go down a, face, a different direction. And, and what happens sometimes is you lose so much of your brand essence trying to chase, you know, uh, this, this sort of virtual community that you start losing who you are and you start diluting your brand. So, so it is a really important discussion that, you know, when brands look for influencer marketing, that it is a right fit, that it makes sense for your brand, that you're proud to have that association. And it's not just a chase for reach or even just a chase because someone is cool at the time. That is a very important one because sometimes we do see that. A lot of clients will ask for specific influencers just because the competition or everyone else is using them at the time. And I think that also comes down to us to consult and say they're great, but I don't think this is this is right for you and these are the reasons. But then that also brings me to a good question. You just said um, you worked with a brand and the online community was kind of wanting something else from the brand. What do you do then? Is it like, oh, maybe my brand needs to evolve with my community or do you stay steadfast um, and hoping you'll attract the kind of clients or consumers that that you are hoping for like it's a chicken and egg kind of question i don't know uh well, well for me there's two inputs into that the the first input is those external factors right the, those who want you to go down a certain route are they actually your customers and that's a really important question because you know at, at the end of the day as brands, you're not simply there for engagement. You're not simply there to have a good time. You're there because you you have a product to sell. You have a business to run, and, and you have to be really sober about that and and say, okay, all, all of these this noise that's happening around the brand, the sentiment, you know, does it come from actual stakeholders who have a vested interest in the brand? Are they customers? Are they shareholders? Are they members of the community that have a vested interest in your brand because of um, whatever reason, you know? And if not. Is it just noise? And a lot of brands are not having those conversations where they can separate the noise from the earnest voices. So that for me is really important is understanding, you know, who's who's making, uh, you know, who, who's contributing to that online conversation and what is the value of those individuals. And, and to be honest as well, like if you got a bunch of views on something, but it didn't move the needle or it, it didn't actually, you know, result in any brand recall, like what is the value of that? So, so I often give the example, um, and I love doing guest lectures. Um, my, my background's in lecturing as well. So I used to love education. I still do. And whenever I do a guest lecture, I sometimes give the example of the Guinness Book of Records. And I talk about how the actual brand Guinness, as much as it started it, or even you know the, the, the Michelin star system, where the tire brand Michelin started it, they get lost in the conversation. You don't even associate 
Guinness Book of Records with, with the actual drink Guinness anymore. No. And, and like, is there something to celebrate Guinness for or has it just diluted so much, you know? So similarly as a brand, you know, if you remember the the joke, but you don't remember the ad, how, how effective and powerful is that? So brands should have these conversations where they understand like that conversation happening around the brand. Is it is it a meaningful conversation? Do these people having the conversations, do they have a vested interest in your brand? Like are they your consumers? And, and is this a conversation that you put uh, value to? Or is it just because it's something relevant at the time? So that's the first factor that I think a, a brand needs needs to consider. And the second thing really is around what's credible for a brand. Brands have to be really honest about the lanes they play in, about what it is they represent, and what it is they can't do, what it is they can't do. Brands can't be everything to everyone, you know, um, uh, unless your brand is you, you make oxygen, I guess. But... Um, so, so earlier when I spoke about the, about the Bursi program, you know, I'm very clear about the criteria. I'm very clear about the objectives of the Bursi program. And if someone comes and asks me, hey, listen, I want to study this thing that, you know, we don't cater for, I have to tell them, you know, thanks for this, but this is not what we offer. We, we can't help you. Sorry. And a lot of brands don't want to do that. You know, you want to appear to be everything to everyone. You, you don't want to choose lane. You don't want to be very focused on, on what you can offer because a lot of brands feel that, you know, they need to be everything to everyone. And I don't know why. So, yeah, I for me, it's about being credible. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's I right. think that's an excellent answer. Um, and I think that also comes back to brands are also influencers at the end of the end of the, 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 the road, right? You, you also influence your consumers they need to know what you stand for what your values are and if you aren't clear about that they you can't build up that credibility um you cannot unfortunately be everything to everyone it just it is what it is 100 <laughs> percent. and i think it's an important conversation to have you know um and it's okay you don't have to be the biggest but you should always try to be the best i love that you should put it on a t-shirt should be the, the MJ Khan slogan. <laughs> MJ, this has actually brought us to almost the end of our conversation. And I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you and listening to how you've grown since I started knowing you and just you listening to your wisdom. And I think to leave us, can you maybe give us two or three key learnings you've learned over the last decade of actually implementing influencer campaigns? Ah, wonderful. Um, okay, so so a few things I'll just rattle off, I guess, as it comes to mind, right? And, and the first thing does come back to my principles around objectives. Be very clear about what you want to achieve. Let that guide you. Let that inform who you want to talk to, what you want to tell them, how do you want to make it them feel, and give them a call to action. Give them something to do, you know? Don't, don't just broadcast. So for me, those objectives are important, and it's important to also take the influences through them, those as well, you know? They need to believe in the same vision you do. Um, it simply can't be a case where uh, a brand has a certain hierarchy and, you know, doesn't disclose whatever it needs to disclose to influencers and expect them to work in a siloed way. You're going to get disparate and fragmented results. You're not going to get the most because you haven't taken people on, those journey, on that journey with you. And the same applies to internal influence as well with staff and employee advocacy, which I think is really the next big phase of influencer marketing. It, it is leveraging your internal advocates, right? So, so, so draw up your objectives, you know, have a very clear vision and, and, and get people on that journey with you. Let them believe in the vision and take them. So that's number one. Number two is to also provide support. And, and I find a lot of the times, you know, brands or even individuals or small businesses, uh, will sometimes spend money on paid media, 
but but they won't follow it up with actually responding to all the comments. They they won't be fast enough to to engage with people. And I'm like, you're spending so much money to attract customers, but when people have an earnest query or they want to find out more, you're not there for them with that same scale and that same eagerness. So so with that as well, with with influencers, you know, it's really important that when we do influencer campaigns and and there's certain pieces of content that go out, that we know when it goes out, so that my team's on standby to jump in to support. Because when there's questions, you know, that's really important. That for us as a lead, we need to be able to convert that and, and lead in, in any sense, you know, whether we want to educate uh, a customer more, move them down the funnel, whatever it is, we need to be there. We need to be supporting influencers. We need to also endorse them as well. You know, we want to make sure that from their point of view, they get sh- uh, their content gets shared by the brand because that's an important endorsement for their own brand, for their own morale. And we want to build that, you know, we want to celebrate the people who work with us because we value them just like how we assume they value us as a brand. So for me, those things are really important is being accessible as a client, making space, doing um, immersion sessions, education sessions, taking people on that journey. Don't just give them the objectives and and assume they know everything about your brand, you know, um, educate them, make them believe in the brand and it just becomes a much richer experience. And, I, think I think those are yeah. big ones. Oh, you've got another one? Please. Uh, I was just going to say, just don't don't be too prescriptive. There's a reason why uh, you're using influencer marketing. It's not because you want the same message shared 15 times. I mean, if that's the case, you know, just use paid media. Influencer marketing has to come with its own flavor and its, uh, you know, its own thing. So, so as much as you give certain guidelines, you, you know, d- don't try and restrict or constrict it too much. Uh, allow some level of creativity because it, within that diversity, you might tap into something you never thought of before. So, so don't just limit campaigns based on your own understanding and your own expectations and experience. You know, uh, embrace influencer marketing with all the diversity uh, that it brings as well. I think those are amazing ones um, and I'm sure that resonates with everyone because that is at the end of the day that's exactly what you want to do you want to attract a diverse audience you want to speak to everyone within your target market in, in a way that really relates to them um, so thank you for that so, okay, uh, thank, thank you so much part. this is great <laughs> no this was so much fun I think lastly where can people connect with you online if they want to find more about you and what Sassel's getting up to? Oh, wonderful. So I am at Concerning MJ on all the major platforms, uh, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, recommend if you do want to connect with me professionally, LinkedIn is probably the best space because that's where I share a lot of uh, content. A lot of my uh, reflections are there. I'm also very proud. I mean, um, so Sassel has the largest corporate page in Africa on LinkedIn. Amazing. So, you know, I, I share, oh, thanks. And I, I share a lot of like, um, what, what sort of, uh, what I've learned over the years in terms of building that presence. So, so if you're into that, you know, c- connect with me there, uh, on the other platforms, you know, it, it's, it's more fun. I do share quite a bit of interesting sort of marketing content across the board, but yeah, at concerning MJ everywhere is where you'll get me. And of course, you know, um, through me, you'll, you'll also get a really interesting point of view and a taste of working at Sassel simply because I get so many opportunities, you know, uh, through Sassel to do really great things, whether it's watching Banyana Banyana pick up the, the gold trophy in Morocco, which I was able to do last month, or even next month where I'm going to be traveling the country with solar cars that have come from around the world in the Sassel Solar Challenge. So it's always fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. I <laughs> want to follow that journey for sure. <laughs> 
Evdeth, thank you so much again for joining us and hopefully we'll chat again soon. I hope so, Anne. And I must say, in closing, you know, you've, you've been a great inspiration and, and really one of the bedrocks for influencer marketing. So really great to see how you've, you've as well grown the space. So hats up to you. Oh, thanks, MJ. And it means so much coming from you. So thank you. Have a good Much one. <laughs> you Much too. love Bye. to you too. <laughs>